Welcome again to the Novice to Office podcast. I am your voice of reason, Trey Bam. Uh, this is really an exciting opportunity for me. I am blown away by the production team at Market Scale and their uh, unbelievable talent. I am grateful. I am also learning. Uh, I've felt I've had an IQ for technology, even if I can't actually do it. I mean, I can't code or do really technical things. It's that way for me across the board. If you sit there and watch every move I make, I can do auto repair. But I don't have the patient for patience for that level of technical proficiency. I mean, I can get it if you explain it to me or put it in a diagram. But if it's any more complicated than Lego, uh, I'm in trouble. So to compensate for this, the good Lord gave me the gift of gab. I was made for the podcast. Some would even say I have a face made for podcasting. Uh, or, of course, you can enjoy this here on YouTube, uh, on video. It is truly raw and real. Uh, last week, we held our inaugural. I believe it was well attended, but I'm awaiting on verification by the National Park Service. Uh, I am beyond grateful as well to those of you who listened. And it wasn't just my mom and dad. We had hits from all over, and that encourages me. So thanks to everyone who wanted to try the new. Uh, but immediately after every inaugural, the newly sworn president gets to work. Pretty much every January 20th, some workspace is set up in the U.S. Capitol, and the new POTUS sits down for a few minutes to crank out a few time-sensitive executive orders. Uh, he does this right before the lunch in the rotunda with the Congress. Uh, I've already had lunch. Uh, so what better way to get my administration underway than to talk about the nursery of all that great American paperwork, the original 14 colonies. Yes, 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 14. Why 14? You must listen to find out. Uh, what we're going to talk about today is definitely a lot of history, but it's going to be technical history. See, I told you I can understand the technical uh, side of things. That's what we're going to talk about as I lay out the first colonies that would become the United States in lightning succession. Uh, and technical description number one is, what is an American colony? What is, is an American colony for our purposes at least? Well, these 14 colonies are important because they are political entities that began to think of themselves as autonomous Americans. And that's the only real criterion. It is true that one of the colonies we're going to talk about did not become an actual state when the Declaration of Independence was signed uh, and later what was called the, Artif the Articles of Confederation were ratified. The 13 colonies that called themselves, uh, quote, representatives of the United States of America in general Congress assembled, became the official United States throughout the revolution. But this 14th colony and in many other areas of North America along the colonial frontier, many people were adopting the mindset as independent Americans. So that is how I'm defining the political entity known as a colony as found in North America. And as we'll see, it didn't take long for this independent style of political thinking to take hold as each colony was formed, uh, some more than 150 years before the Declaration even. So our story begins in 1584. Elizabeth I of England granted Walter Raleigh, uh, who was a privateer, kind of mercenary, 
uh, a royal charter to establish a colony in a place she called remote, heathen, and barbarous lands, countries, and territories not actually possessed of any Christian prince or inhabited by Christian people. Uh, this was less than 100 years after Columbus discovered the land masses of the Western Hemisphere. And uh, during that time, Spain and Portugal had conquered most of the area and set up gigantic extraction operations. Spain through silver mining in northern Mexico and what is now Bolivia, Portugal through sugar plantations along the Brazilian coast. Uh, Spain especially grew dominant and very, very rich. Right as they were getting these cash operations going, however, Elizabeth became queen in a nation that had left the Roman Catholic Church, which was Spain's church, and she was caught in a complex real-life game of thrones between England, Scotland, France, Spain, and the Netherlands. Uh, Elizabeth granted the charter to settle English claims in North America to try and solidify them and maybe hopefully cash in on some of the goodies the place seemed to offer. Raleigh got his settlement efforts underway through his business partners, and they picked a stretch of the North American wilderness that was easy for ships to access and where the climate was such that wonder crops like potatoes and tobacco could both be grown. The business partners uh, of Raleigh's named this stretch of coastline Virginia after their queen who never married. But the first colony that Raleigh tried to set up, called Roanoke, suffered through a series of hardships and never got off the ground. Uh, Elizabeth then lost interest as well for a variety of reasons. Fast forward to 1606. There's a new king on the English throne, James I. He was playing his own game with Spain. Between that and wanting to get rich also, the king issued a second charter to colonize the Virginia lands and by Virginia lands, they meant from what would be the Carolinas all the way up to Maine. Uh, the next year, the first settlements appeared at the mouth of the so-named James River in modern, true Virginia. Uh, and here we have our first colony. Virginia and our next uh, example are, are two of the types of Northern American colonies that would be established. Virginia was set up purely for cash. They struggled badly as well at first, but in a few years, they were, they were able to set up a system to get tobacco cultivated on a large scale, and the colony took off. This, of course, was done through indenturement for white workers and full-on slavery for Africans who were forcibly brought in. Uh, and this cash-driven model of plantation agriculture didn't lend itself to any sort of urbanization. Therefore, colonial administrative decisions had to be made through assemblies of landholders during the downtime of tobacco production. Of course, the king had a governor, but these assemblies were a big part and would be the first republic-style institutions of North America. In contrast to the cash motive, Massachusetts, further north, was settled 13 years later. Many of us know the story of the Pilgrims uh, in 1620, who were a radical group of Protestant Christians who wanted to leave England and, and really just want to do their own thing. But a decade or so after the Mayflower, the main section of the colony, what was called Massachusetts Bay Colony, was founded. And this is where Boston sprang up. Uh, Boston was named after the town in England's Lincolnshire, from which this group of Puritans came. 
Uh, this and many other villages formed because the Puritans, and they were the more general name of the English religious rites, so to speak, centered their interpretation of Christian community on a plantation of people, as it were. They built villages where their homes were within mere feet of each other for the primary purpose of conducting surveillance on each other. Yes, the whole point of their lives was hypervigilance of each other's Christian lifestyle. Uh, if a couple were quarreling, the neighbors would hear it and report it to the elders. If someone got drunk, they'd have to wear a sign around their neck saying so. If an adulterous couple, or even a married couple for that matter, were being indiscreet, they'd have to wear a red letter on their garments, or they'd have to stand on a little mount in the public called a pillory. Now, there was always due process in these situations, but restraint, modesty, and humility in the model of Christ were the order of the day, and this attitude was truly the heart and soul of the Puritan village. The farms then were for subsistence, not cash, and they were tilled just beyond the residential area, outside the little village. So this is what the Puritans and the other New England settlers meant by plantation. It was a modest agricultural village that supported their way of life. And the rules for this lifestyle and, and the enforcement and the regular administration of the colony were all made in the center of the village, eventually the town, at the meeting house. Later on, these townships would feed into larger uh, countywide assemblies or what in New England were called courts. While these were more frequent than the assemblies down south, these two types of legislatures, the meeting house and the assembly, were similar in being innovations of self-governance. So these are the two types of the colonies. So let's talk in rapid-fire succession about the other 12. In 1624, we have New York, and its English founding was 1664, but I'm putting it here. Uh, New York was a, definitely a cash colony, but it was set up by Dutch traders, and the way they did things was a little different in that they would sail up somewhere and set up a fortified trading post in the interior. They did this in two key places in North America, first on the Hudson River as far north as a deep draft vessel could go, and they named it Fort Orange after the Dutch leading family. Uh, they built a second seagoing port at the southern end of this river on an island inside a well-defined harbor that was inhabited by a tribe of Native Americans called the Manhattan. The fort they built there was called Fort Amsterdam, the post-New Amsterdam. And then in 1664, the Dutch lost their post-slash-colony when they were defeated by King Charles II during a short war over in Europe. King Charles II then gave the colony to his brother, the brother had the English title, the Duke of York, and because the royal family was also Scottish, he had the title, the Duke of Albany. The brother then renamed the two posts accordingly. Although diverse in its population as an international seaport, New York still adopted the English model of assembly administration that was emerging uh, in the New World. Uh, Maryland in 1632 a religious refuge colony like Massachusetts. Unlike Massachusetts, however, this one was to be a safe place for the Catholics fleeing England. Uh, due to continuing conflict between the Church of England, its Puritan movement within it, and the Roman Catholic Church in England, King Charles I granted Cecil Calvert, Lord Baltimore, 
a royal charter to settle the area of Chesapeake Bay as a place for English Catholics to settle peacefully, uh, hence Maryland. It also helped that tobacco could be cultivated this far north. Rhode Island in 1636, the first offshoot colony in America, a religious colony. Rhode Island was founded when Puritan dissident Roger Williams was exiled from Massachusetts over his dispute with the elders in Boston. Because Williams advocated for the Indians, the Narragansett welcomed him into their lands, which were just south of Boston, uh, Massachusetts, uh, along the main river there, praising God for his safety uh, Williams named the spring-fed lands along the river he settled on Providence. Williams was also much more tolerant of differing views. Uh, it is believed early explorers call the area after the Isle of Rhodes in the Aegean Sea. So the official colony, and later the state name, was the State of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations. Uh, in the wake of the George Floyd incident in 2020, Voters removed the plantations part of the name via referendum uh, due to its connotation with southern uh, southern plantation agriculture. Um, the original purpose of the Pur Puritan plantation, of course, that of accountability, Christian submission to the group, and a non-exploitive farm econom economy. It doesn't seem like the voters were thinking that when they made this decision. Uh, Connecticut, 1636, also an offshoot colony of Massachusetts and therefore a religious colony. The dissenter here was a guy named Thomas Hooker who got crossed with the church government in Boston primarily and somewhat prophetically over whether anyone in the meeting house could vote on a given issue. The way the Puritans ran things in Boston was that you had to be a full-on church member whose faith would have been thoroughly vetted, uh, interrogated uh, to vote, but Hooker thought that anyone who showed up at the meeting house should be able to vote, certainly on non-theological matters, pure admin. This was not only a forerunner of uh, the Congregationalist model of church government, which would develop, uh, and is probably the most common model among evangelical churches today, but this position on voting was also prescient in separating the ability to vote on community matters from church membership and therefore the church itself. So separation of church and state. Hooker settled along the Connecticut River in what is today Hartford, the capital, although other Puritans founded New Haven along the coast at about the same time. And it's important to note here about these New England colonies, and we'll round them out here with New Hampshire uh, in a second, that even though they were having these intellectual dust-ups about the church, uh, they all centered mainly on church administration and not core theological issues or biblical interpretation, and certainly not the Puritan lifestyle. There was homogeneity amongst all these communities as they spread across the wilderness with their lifestyle and, and sought to live out their faith. And when there were violent encounters with the Native Americans, all of them immediately allied themselves with each other. Uh, this is a security concept that would set a clear precedent for the revolution uh, even uh, decades later. Moving on, in Delaware in 1638, okay, Delaware is kind of a weird one. It was initially a small colony of Swedes who had some under-the-table backing from the Dutch. 
Their area was near Wilmington, and interestingly, the Swedes are the ones who introduced log cabin tech to North America uh, here. The way they were building houses was in the the way they did it in England, which were all out of beams and thatch. They took the name uh, from the Delaware Bay between them and New Jersey. Uh, The bay had been named for an English nobleman instrumental in setting up Virginia named the Baron de la Loire. Uh, the the Dutch backers, anyway, came into conflict with the company running things, and the Dutch government had to take it over. Then the English got the colony when they defeated the Dutch and got New York, as we just mentioned, in back in 1664. Now, to make things more complicated, the English granted these Delaware areas to William Penn, who we'll talk about in a minute, so that he could better set up his colony. Uh, But by this time in the 1690s, the Delaware people were very diverse and could also grow a little bit of tobacco due to their latitude. So they had become a cash colony, more or less, which wasn't what Penn was doing. And so he just let them govern themselves. In 1663, we have South Carolina, definitely a cash colony. It has a security component. Uh, The colony was originally set up by Charles I, the one who we mentioned Last week ended up with the extreme haircut. Uh, But during the time when England didn't have a king after him, when the parliamentarians were in charge, the colony faltered. But when the English monarchy was restored, the new king, Charles II, his son, amped up the colonization efforts by rewarding some of the loyal nobles during the English Civil War with a new charter in 1663. In addition to economic development, the crown wanted to create some security in its southernmost part of its North American claim, uh, still against the Spanish, who were in Florida. So these nobles drew up a system of grants and laws. One of these nobles, the Earl of Shaftesbury, was a patron to a man we've already met, John Locke. Locke, who, remember, was a skilled writer and clerk of sorts, was drafted to create these uh, these Carolinian ordinances, which were also kind of a proto-constitution. They were, they were literally called that, the, Carolinian constitution. In South Carolina, they could grow tobacco, but they were also hot enough to grow indigo and rice. This meant more slaves. And because uh, South Carolina's leaders were very much the English nobility, South Carolina really took on more than the other colonies, a feudal style uh, government and society, which was another thing that made them a little more distinct from the other colonies. Uh, Again, in 1664, we have New Jersey, uh, a product of that pivotal year uh, when the British dislodged the Dutch from this whole coastal region, which kind of went from western Connecticut down to the Chesapeake. Uh, uh, It was a cash economy, and New Jersey was developed by two buddies of the Duke of York, who I remember, who remember I said had been given this area by his brother, King Charles II. They named it after Jersey Island in the English Channel. New Jersey is very flat, of course, and so it was fairly easy to settle by regular farmers who would set up self-sufficient homesteads, but they could also grow cereals on a large scale, and they were easy to get to market via the Hudson and the Delaware Rivers. Uh, New Hampshire, 1679, again, another Massachusetts offshoot, but a little more in the cash colony variety than the religious one. Uh, There was no overt church conflict involved. It was simply made up of Puritans moving out from the main colony. uh, And it was governed actually for a time from Boston. 
the first settlements in New Hampshire were back in the 1620s, but in 1679, Charles II gave them their own charter. Uh, in 1682, we have Pennsylvania. A lot of folks may be a little more familiar with the creation of Pennsylvania as well. Uh, it was definitely a religious colony founded by Quakers from England. Uh, the Quakers weren't like the Puritans. The, the Puritans considered themselves part of the Church of England. They were within the Church of England. The Quakers, by contrast, actually broke with the church. Their leader was a guy named George Fox, uh, and he taught that everyone not only had direct access to God, independent of any hierarchy, be it Catholic, Protestant, Anglican, Puritan, anything, but that Christians also had an inner light comprised of God. And this was considered blasphemy, and Fox was dragged before an English court in 1650, during the proceeding, it was claimed that the magistrate, magistrate trembled when Fox preached the word at him, thus the nickname Quaker. Their real name is, is the Society of Friends. Uh, obviously, persecution of this religious group became widespread. The king tried to send them to New England, thinking they'd be tolerated with those dissenters, but the exact opposite happened. The Massachusetts Puritans had become feverishly intolerant and legalistic, and they actually hanged one of the Quaker women for preaching heresy and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, a solution was found, though, through a wealthy Quaker convert, William Penn. He set up Penn's Woods, courtesy of a royal charter, and Pennsylvania became a haven for Quakers and many others, uh, including many Jews from England, as they were accepted as monotheists. The Quakers were also pacifists, and so they were more careful in their dealings with the local tribes, and everyone got along much better there than in the other colonies. Uh, in fact, the rapport that Quakers had with Native Americans would eventually make them reputable agents uh, to many of the Indian tribes across the West uh, during the westward expansion, which was often very tragic otherwise. Uh, the Quakers were thrifty and industrious and never borrowed nor taxed the public, and their communal approach to economic development made Philadelphia the biggest city in North America by the time of the Revolution, and I think in the British Empire is exceeded only by London. Uh, in 1729, we have North Carolina. North Carolina was separated from South Carolina during this year as the population of the region grew much of North Carolina was settled overland from Virginia. Some were English nobles, but also many were Scotch-Irish immigrants. And and so you could imagine that this demographic would think a little differently than their more aristocratic uh, neighbors to the South. King George I separated them by working, however, with those same South Carolina noble families I mentioned earlier. In 1733, we have Georgia. Now, Georgia is probably my favorite story. It is an economic, but not necessarily cash economy, and it was moralistic, but not really religious. Uh, Georgia was really the first social reform experiment of its kind. By now, the king was George II, for whom the colony was named, and he granted this special charter to a guy with a military education named James Oglethorpe. Oglethorpe uh, was something of an intellectual, and after getting elected to the English parliament, he became the chairman of what they called the Jails Committee. It's spelled differently. But this committee had jurisdiction over the debtors' prisons as well as criminal incarceration. Uh, while chairman, Oglethorpe came up with the idea 
of recruiting what he called the worthy poor to go to a settlement in America where certain controls would be in place. Among these controls would be no alcohol. There would be no slavery. And everyone would get 50 acres of land, but, but that was it. They had to live modesty, modestly and learn to be self-sufficient. So in 1732, off they went to the coast between South Carolina and Spanish Florida. They sailed up the Savannah River. Uh, Oglethorpe and the king were also security-minded. Um, but as you can imagine, a place with no booze got pretty boring. <laughs> and with people limited at holding 50 acres, most of the people... No other land could be bought and sold amongst those folks. Economic development stagnated. Under pressure and a need of everyone to cooperate during military issues with the Spanish, however, Oglethorpe gradually lifted all of his rules, including slavery, by 1750. After that, Georgia started to look more like Virginia and the other colonies that were doing the large-scale plantation agriculture. So Georgia provided a true cash, became a true cash colony, even after an early attempt at virtue. So these are what are known as the original 13 colonies that became the United States. Uh, These are their origins. Now I want to wrap up our discussion with Colony 14, which is West Florida, which I date for our purposes starting at 1763. Now, trying to be as clear as mud, West Florida was only a British colony between the end of the French and Indian War, which was also known as the Seven Years' War, and the capture of Pensacola in 1781. It was captured by the Spanish governor of Louisiana during the American Revolution. Uh, The guy's name was Bernardo de Galvez, for whom Galveston, Texas is named. We may need to talk about him more later. So West Florida was never in this trying-to-leave-England state like the other 13. The Continental Congress did try to recruit them. Uh, Benjamin Franklin wrote the handful of colonists down there, various letters, but for the people down in what is today the Florida Panhandle, Mobile Bay, and the Mississippi Gulf Coast, there there were so few of them, and they were so limited in resources, they just weren't interested in the revolution at first. There were maybe 2,500 people in this area by the time of the war, whereas in the main colonies, there were uh, closer to two and a half, three million people. But when Spain captured the area, the people there conceived of the idea that they could join this new nation to the north. Remember, they caught the idea of a republic and actually formed one later on in 1610. But remember, the Spanish were Catholic, and so everyone down there wasn't Catholic, joined forces. uh, But still, the status of the area and as who it belonged to really remained in limbo for several years until General Andrew Jackson captured Pensacola during the first Seminole War of 1817. Uh, Then as a territory, the West Florida area was eventually carved up among the larger states forming around them, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida proper. But the the West Florida example, this is my point, is more about what constitutes an American state than its example as a rebelling colony, which is this. Americans are about creating their own status. They are abstract and contractual. Association based on an idea, be it economic, religious, social, or just as an administrative measure, is how America rolls in just about every area of life, but especially in politics and government. In our next episode, we will discuss the ultimate contractual association in America, the Constitution. 
Until then, keep it free.